0: The faith of our fathers today we feature john stott described as the presumptive pope of the evangelicals he leaves behind a legacy that continues to expand through the power of god's word he was an avid bird watcher and photographer taking his binoculars and camera with him on all of his travels he saw nearly 2700 of the world's 9,000 species of birds he was an honorary chaplain to the queen from 1959 to 1991. Today, John Stott presents a sermon on Daily Repentance. Now, the call to repentance is an aspect of Christianity which is very familiar to us all. You will, I'm sure, remember that the very first recorded words of Jesus in his public ministry after the announcement of the arrival of the kingdom of God were, repent and believe the good news. And Jesus continued to call people to repentance. He warned them, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He said, there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Repentance is one of the themes of the teaching of Jesus. The apostles of Jesus, particularly Peter and Paul, were faithful in echoing their master's teaching. In the first Christian sermon ever preached on the day of Pentecost by the apostle Peter, he concluded by saying, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul, standing before the Areopagus in the great and ancient city of Athens, told him at the end of his sermon that God now demands that everybody everywhere will repent. So that's not new to any of us. Jesus and his apostles often spoke of repentance. But I think we tend to associate repentance with the beginning of the Christian life. Repent, believe, and be saved. Yes, we repented maybe some years ago when we came to Jesus Christ. But we don't always remember as we should that repentance is a continuous and even a progressive experience in the Christian life as more and more areas in our lives are exposed to us as requiring repentance. In fact we are called to daily repentance. Now may I may ask you to turn to my text you'll find it in the New Testament section from the second lesson that was read and in the Bible it's page 66. The Gospel of Luke, and as I read verse 23, you will notice the adverb, daily. Luke 9, verse 23. Jesus said to all, if anybody wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's one of those pithy little sayings, one of those epigrams that Jesus often repeated. There's no reason to suppose that he said it only once. That may be the reason why several variants of the saying have been recorded, and it's Luke only who adds the adverb daily. You will notice that the exhortation of Jesus is addressed to all. My text begins, and he said to all. You'll notice also that it is applied to each, for he said if anybody. So that applies to everybody here this morning and everybody else in the world. If you want to follow Jesus, here are certain things we have to do. There is a threefold exhortation. Let him deny himself and take up his cross every day. And then and only then he will be in a position to follow me, said Jesus. It's obvious we have to deny ourselves before we can follow Christ. The two negatives precede the positive. So I want to inquire this morning. I want to invite you to think with me about this. What attitude to ourselves should the followers of Jesus adopt? What do you think of yourself? And what attitude to yourself should we adopt? I want to begin by urging upon all of us that we avoid two extreme positions. The first I'm going to call trivialization, and the second, exaggeration. And then thirdly, we shall come on to a more balanced understanding of what a Christian's attitude to himself or herself should be. So one, beware of trivialization. Jesus' call to self-denial and to cross-bearing have both been trivialized by the Christian church. Take self-denial. Well, the popular understanding of self-denial is a token act of asceticism in Lent. When we give up sweets and cakes and tobacco and alcohol, and other such extravagances. I want to say, my brothers and sisters this morning, self-denial is a much more radical concept than that. The same verb, to deny yourself, is used of Peter denying Jesus. When Peter denied Jesus, he disowned him, he repudiated him, and he turned his back on him. When we deny ourselves, we disown ourselves, we repudiate ourselves, and we turn our back on ourselves. Self-denial is not denying certain luxuries to ourselves. It is denying ourselves to ourselves. It's not giving up a few little petty self-indulgences, in the plural, It's giving up self-indulgence altogether in order to follow Jesus. Don't trivialize self-denial. And don't trivialize cross-bearing either. In the Middle Ages, it was commonly understood that our cross is some little trial or affliction which comes to us. And references were made in medieval days to all the losses and the crosses which we have to endure in life. That was a phrase they used to use. And that misuse, that misunderstanding of taking up the cross, survives today. Somebody has a bad back, a touch of sciatica, or you have an allergy like hay fever, or you have a sick relative to nurse, or a cantankerous spouse you have to live with. And with a feigned air of pious uh, resignation, you say, I suppose it's my cross. It's nothing of the kind. The true meaning of taking up the cross is quite, quite different. And we need to remember, because we must always read Scripture in its context, its historical and its biblical context, we need to remember that taking up the cross had a precise literal meaning before Jesus turned it into a figure of speech. Jesus was speaking in a country that was occupied by the Roman army, and uh, the Romans reserved crucifixion for the most despicable criminals, and having condemned a man to death by crucifixion, they compelled him to carry his own cross to the place of execution. So that when Pilate turned Jesus over to the Jewish leaders and to the soldiers, we read Jesus went out bearing his own cross to the place of a skull. That's John 19, verse 17. And probably, though we're not actually told this, It is only when Jesus stumbled under the weight of the cross and could endure it no longer that they laid hold of Simon of Cyrene, laid the cross on him, and compelled him to carry the cross for Jesus. But usually condemned people carried their own cross. So, the followers of Jesus are to put themselves into the place of a condemned criminal on his way to execution that is what it means to carry the cross if we follow jesus with a cross on our shoulder there is only one possible place to which we could be following him there is only one place to which people go when they're carrying crosses that's the place of execution Not always literally, not all the followers of Jesus are crucified, though some have been. But figuratively, as Bonhoeffer said in his great book on the cost of discipleship, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him die. Yes, the call to Jesus is a call to death. Death to our own self-centeredness in order that we may follow him. Uh, Paul picked up this imagery and used it in Galatians 5.24 when he said those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified. They have crucified their fallen sinful nature with all its passions and its desires. Well, that's it then. Jesus calls us to self-denial and he calls us to self-crucifixion. It's not enough to deny to ourselves a few extravagances and luxuries. It is not enough to call some frustration in our lives our cross. No, he calls us to the actual repudiation or, metaphorically, crucifixion of ourselves. Nobody in our own day has expressed it more graphically than Malcolm Muggeridge, that wizard with words, who says it is necessary to die... To murder one's own flesh, by which I hope he meant one's old uh, fallen nature. I hope he wasn't talking about the mutilation of the body. I I think he understands enough about the New Testament to know that we're never told to, to do that. No, by the flesh he means our fallen nature, I hope. To murder our sinful nature, he says, with the utmost ferocity. We have to batter down one's ego as one might a deadly snake, a cobra which has lifted its hooded head with darting forked tongue ready to sting. I hope you're with me so far. I hope that you will see with me that the logic of what Jesus was teaching is inexorable. Because the denying of self must, follow, must precede the following of Christ. We cannot follow Christ and follow self simultaneously. The one has to yield to the other. Either we abdicate the throne of our own lives in order that Jesus may ascend it, or we say, I'm going to be king of my castle and dethrone Christ in order to be so. It's either self on the throne and Christ on the cross, or Christ on the throne and self on the cross. That is logic, and it has to be done daily. Each day we have to repent of our own self-centeredness. Each day we have to surrender to the lordship of Jesus, Each day we dethrone ourselves and we enthrone Christ. I say again, beware of trivialization. The call of Jesus is to a radical discipleship. But now I go to the opposite extreme. Beware also of exaggeration. I'm quite sure as we've been going along so far, I have offended some of you. I hope I have. Because what I've been saying so far is not the whole truth. What I've said so far is true, but it's not the whole truth, it's a half-truth, and for that reason it can be dangerously misleading. As a matter of fact, our text today is a very good example of the peril of what is sometimes called proof-texting. That is to say of imagining that you can pick a single text out of the Bible and have within it the whole truth about any particular doctrine or practice. Proof texting is a very foolish and a very dangerous habit because what God has given us is a comprehensive, balanced revelation of himself and his will in the whole of the Bible and indeed also supremely in Christ to whom the whole Bible bears witness. So what we need to do is to receive and to read and to study the whole of his revelation in Christ and Scripture and grasp it as a whole, seeing how the parts beautifully dovetail with one another. Now let's apply that to our text today. See, so far I have portrayed myself or yourself as something totally sinful, which is therefore to be totally denied, disowned, dethroned, and crucified. But such a totally negative self-image is a very unhealthy thing to have, and it has led a number of Christians in our own generation to an overreaction. And some people are telling us today, some Christian people are telling us today, you've got to learn to love yourself, not hate yourself. You've got to learn to accept yourself, not deny yourself. They even say you've got to pamper yourself, not crucify yourself. So that instead of a wholly negative attitude of self-crucifixion, they are recommending a totally positive attitude of self-acceptance, even self-adulation or flattery, but that is an extreme too. So, in place of those two, the trivialization and the exaggeration, I want now to urge thirdly that we seek to develop the biblical balance. The Bible teaches us two truths about ourselves as human beings, and not one only. The first truth it teaches is a very positive truth that you and I have been made in the image of God. And that divine image survives even in our sinful state. The second truth the Bible teaches about us is that we are fallen, sinful and selfish, and that the divine image in us, though surviving, has been twisted out of shape. Ah, because we're godlike creatures made in his image, there is a certain inalienable dignity about every human being, however debauched and depraved. But because of our fallenness, there is a certain degradation about us in spite of the divine image that we bear. And if I'm not greatly mistaken, you and I are very well aware of this dichotomy or this paradox in our own self-consciousness and in our everyday living. You and I know very well, well, let me talk about myself. I know very well that I am both noble and ignoble. I know that there are things about me that are worthy and unworthy. I know that I'm capable at one moment of behaving like God in whose image I was made. And in the next moment, like an animal from whom I was meant, as you are too, to be eternally distinct. Humankind is a strange, bewildering paradox. I don't know anybody who has expressed it better than Richard Holloway, who is an Anglican clergyman now in a church in Boston, though he was formerly up in Edinburgh and is a Scot. But in a fine address he gave a few years ago, he said, this is my dilemma. I am dust and ashes, frail and wayward. A set of predetermined behavioral responses, riddled with fears, beset with needs. The quintessence of dust, and unto dust I shall return. But there is something else in me. Dust I may be, but troubled dust. Dust that dreams. Dust that has strange premonitions of transfiguration, of a glory in store, a destiny prepared, an inheritance that will one day be my own. So, he says, my life is stretched out in a painful dialectic between ashes and glory between weakness and transfiguration. I'm a riddle to myself, an exasperating enigma, this strange duality of dust and glory. That's true, isn't it? You feel that about yourself. I know it about myself. This is the human dilemma. So then, in the light of that biblical teaching, What is to be our attitude to ourselves? Well, it cannot possibly be one of total rejection, nor of total acceptance. To begin with, how can I repudiate myself totally if God has created me in his own image? And if I'm a Christian, has recreated me in his image through Christ? How can I totally repudiate myself? It's ludicrous. Professor Anthony Hukima, for whom I have a warm personal regard, who's recently retired from being a professor in Calvin Seminary in Grand Rapids in Michigan. In his excellent little book, The Christian Looks at Himself, he quotes the hymn, From my smitten heart with tears, two wonders I confess, the wonders of His glorious love, and my own worthlessness. He says quite correctly, that's rubbish. No human being is worthless. Whenever we sing that hymn today, I never sing that line. Oh, if it had said, and my unworthiness, yes, that is true, but not worthlessness. No human being made in the image of God is worthless. Anthony Huckimer quotes a little black boy in the States rebelling against the inferiority feelings inculcated in him by whites who put up a banner in his room that said, I'm me and I'm good because God don't make junk. (laughs) And he was right. We cannot be totally repudiating of ourselves because God has made us in his image. But we cannot be totally accepting either, as if our only duty was to build up our self-esteem, when from time to time we're thoroughly ashamed of ourselves, of this threadbare apology of a human being that most of us are. No, we're a mixture. We're a mixture of good and evil. The good, the noble, and the worthy is due to our creation in the image of God. The bad, the ignoble, and the unworthy is due to the fall and to our own sinfulness. So what we have to do as Christians is to learn to distinguish which part of us is which. Because whatever we are by creation, we have to affirm But whatever we are by the fall and by our own sin, we have to deny and repudiate. Now, let me recapitulate for a moment or two and then conclude. We've tried to see that we human beings are very ambivalent creatures. Every one of us is an overgrown, mixed-up kid. And some aren't so very overgrown. We're just mixed-up kids. Every one of us. Every one of us is a Jekyll and Hyde. We have both a true self that owes its origin to creation and a false self that owes its origin to the fall and to sin. And it is essential for our mental and our spiritual health that first we discern which is which and second we adopt the right attitude to each. Affirming the one, denying the other cultivating the one, crucifying the other, being false to our false self, but true to our true self. And the conclusion is we need to do it day by day by day. The Christian life is lived every day, not by fits and starts, not from Sunday to Sunday. Don't let the sun go down on your roof. Paul said, that is, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't carry your anger over from today to tomorrow. And what's true of anger is true of other horrid things as well. Don't go to bed with any wrong thoughts and attitudes in your heart and mind, festering there so that they're worse tomorrow. Deal with them the same day. Don't carry over a debit to the next column or the next day. Then each morning we settle affairs with God each night before we go to bed. Then each morning we wake up, we're ready to greet Jesus every morning as our Lord. And on the one hand we say, Thank you, Lord Jesus, that I have the great joy and privilege of being a human being made in the image of your Father, recreated by your grace. What a glorious thing it is to be human. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And then, but I'm sorry, sorry, Lord Jesus. If I thank you for my creation, I have to confess to you that I'm a fallen and a sinful creature. And if it is a noble thing to be a human being, it's also a very ignoble thing and it's a shameful thing to be as self-centered as I am then every day you see we affirm our createdness and we deny our fallenness. And to follow Christ includes both. May God lead us into this discerning, discriminating, balanced Christian life and deliver us from limping through life in imbalance. Let us pray. So we bring ourselves to our heavenly Father in the silence of our hearts, in thanksgiving and repentance. We thank him for the privilege of being a human being created in his own image with unique faculties of mind and conscience and creativity and love and worship which separate us from the animal creation. And then we repent of our fallenness. We turn away from our sinful self-centeredness. Let us pray for a moment in silence. Oh Lord Jesus we thank you for the privilege of being a human being made in your father's image remade by your grace we thank you for all the glimpses of glory that you give to us all the God likeness of which we are aware in ourselves we thank and praise you even in our fallenness we see it, feel it, know it but we repent of all those vestiges of sin that remain in us even though we are redeemed. We turn from them. We take up our cross. We deny them and we want to follow you. Grant it, Lord Jesus. For your great name's sake. Amen. You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.